Welcome to the No Nonsense Edgeway Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm David Benito. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on. So we want to talk to you about Agile product management today. But first, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what your experience is. Okay. So I'm a passionate product leader for 10 years now. And before that, I was a software developer. I have been in different scenarios from startups to big corporations, like from 30 people to 100,000 different business models, different countries, Brazil, Colombia, Dominican Republic, and now in Germany. So I'm leading a team of product managers here and trying to deliver value. That's who I am. So you've been working in Agile for quite a long time, haven't you? Yeah, at least 15 years in total. And you write for serious scrums. Yeah. I have been working with scrums since 2011 and let's say kind of agile a little bit before when I was software developer and I write to, to series scrum at least once a week since 2020 and also UX collective and some other publications on medium. I read your article calling for a product manifesto and it triggered a few questions for me. So. What's the problem with Scrum from a product manager's point of view? The problem is who is driving the car. So um, the Scrum can be great, but if you don't apply product management techniques there, you won't be able to deliver value. Okay. But can you be more specific? What are the gaps? Product owner is responsible for maximizing the value resulting from the work of the Scrum team. But how you're going to do that? Well, you're on your own, figure that out. So. Inspect and adapt, but it doesn't tell you what outcome is. It doesn't tell you how you can measure the results or how to prioritize it. So it leaves a lot of uh, space for interpretation. And that is the danger of it. You certainly see a lot of people using Scrum as a feature factory, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Because for example, the name Agile is quite tricky because People connect with speed and then Scrum brings the sprint and then that goes to more speed and then maximizing the value. For some stakeholders, for example, it would be maximizing the amount of features developed. So it means we start doing Scrum and it means we start doing more features, right? More velocity, more store points at the end of each sprint and that's it. And then product teams are trapped. Stakeholders tell them what to do and then they implement. For me, this is something kind of weird. So the specialist is receiving the solution to implement without knowing the problem to solve. I hear people talking about tickets all the time. Have you written the ticket? Have you done the ticket? Where's the ticket at? How many tickets did we do in JIRA? That's because everybody's using JIRA. So that's a help desk system. You know how I feel about JIRA. It's one of my many dislikes of the agile world is that we treat the work to be done as a help desk ticket. And so we have a piece of software that supports that paradigm. It's ridiculous. I think it's a great tool, depending how you use it. So it can help us organizing our work, having the backlog and so on, but it can get quite complex with the workflow. I've written about Jira and I've seen some workflows. I have used some of them that are quite complex. And then Jira gets in the way of collaboration because people fall in love with the process and whenever there's a problem, for example, ah, we had an issue with 
quality assurance. So let's create a new status on Jira, and then let's ensure that we do that instead of addressing the, the root cause. So this is what I fear about Jira. At some point in time, I said, let's just stop using Jira, create a board, and then we put the lines you do, doing, and then done. That is what we need. We don't need more than that. And I face a lot of resistance. Developers, for example, no, we need Jira because then we can comment on the ticket and put everything and so on. And then the process becomes more important than actually delivering value. Yeah, I've got to agree. It's, we try and use a tool to fix the process problem. I, my role is to be on the team for a change. And we have a problem with dependencies across the squads. So we shouldn't have handoffs, but we do. And the handoffs aren't working. So we raised it. We all had a great chat about it and somebody's answer was, well, we should all be using Jira and we can link our tickets. And as I said to them, well, we probably want to get our way of working, get our process sorted first, and then when it's working, we can automate it with a tool like Jira, but forcing everybody to create tickets and link them is not going to solve the root cause of the problem we have, which is we're not handing off our work properly in a way that we understand what we need to deliver to which squad when. So I'm with you, we tend to jump to tools rather than process and ways of working as our default of trying to fix problems. And there's another thing about this pattern. You mentioned the word ticket. Let's say there's a problem in production and then someone creates a ticket and then the developer says, this is not a bug, that there was an expected behavior. And then the conversation goes and arguing whether that is a bug, it's a task or a new story. I feel like the house is burning and we are talking, what is this? Is it fire? What is happening? Nobody's taking action to take care of the fire that is happening. No, this is not a bug. We cannot report a bug. We need to put as a request change and then we will deal with that. So I think this behavior is against agile product management. It's not about delivering value. It's about following a process. I think the agile manifesto itself has some responsibility here, not just scrum. It has one line in it, which talks about delivering value to customers. The first principle is delivering value to customers early and often, but then everything else in it is really about software development. And it's assuming that the people we're delivering value to are business people within the, the company. I think cause it was written by software developers, they assumed that business people knew what had to be built. And so we just need to make sure we work closely with them, but they could be wrong. And they are. Yeah, that's what I, I, I think as well. But it was created by developers, for developers. In 2002, collaboration with stakeholders was more like a service provider relationship. So I own the solution and then you implement that. So this is the problem they tried to address. I think it did a good job back then. It increased collaboration. But when I look now, I see many teams trapped. Software can be working and can still be not used by anyone to be not delivering value at all. If you follow that blindly, yeah, you may not get what you need. Well, you might have seen the research by the Standish group, which shows that two thirds of product features are used rarely or never. And also there was some recent research by a company called Pendo who run applications in the cloud for other companies. And they found very similar things that 70 or 80% of the features in their customers' products were hardly ever used. So we seem to still be building huge numbers of features that people don't use. Yeah. 
And this is because of how the decision process happens. So executives define prescriptive roadmaps and then teams implement that. The teams may collaborate very close to executives and stakeholders, but it's a, on the solution level. And what I have observed is a fear of losing work. So you put a feature live on a product and then nobody use, but you put your energy there. You worked hard for that, but nobody is brave enough to remove that. People perceive a great product as a product that has nothing else to add. And for me, this is a faulty perception. I think a great product is a one that has nothing else to remove. Just look at Google. You have a text input and then you hit enter and you get your results. So they try to make it as simple as possible. But what I observe is people think that you need more to get more results. And I think more cause more confusions, distractions, and then users will question, what is the need for me? I don't know. I see so many features and they get puzzled. They quit. Yeah, it's, it's certainly true. If you talk to people who've come up through product management in marketing and who really haven't had any exposure to agile, there is a very siloed mentality. You typically have product management divided up into a product manager who does customer research and marketing, and then a technical project manager who does delivery of a product spec. So there's somebody who claims to be a champion and thought leader of product management who has a book that talks about how there must be this separation between product managers and developers. And I was wondering what you thought about that. I have a very strong opinion about it. I think one person must be responsible from end to end, from the discover process until you deliver it. I think it's one bus, one driver. You cannot have two people driving the bus to create confusion. And the more people you add, it will create lack of responsibility. Just take an example. Someone is responsible for the scope. Let's call this as a product manager. This person defines what to do, find the right things to do. And then a product owner will be responsible for the execution. And then he will ensure that the thing is done right. This is what safe claims, what I think is faulty. And the reason I think this is not working. If the product owner fails to get the value, he will say, well, the other guy made the wrong decision. So we deliver what he claimed. And then the product manager can say, well, the team implemented incorrectly. It's not what I wanted. And then it's a lack of responsibility. And the focus is a kind of attitude. I do what I'm told and I have a reduced responsibility. I'm responsible for the what, while the other is responsible for the how. I don't think this works well. I think. Uh, a great team is one that is empowered to identify problems that are worth solving, drive validating assumptions and so on. And then once that's proven to create value, then implement a solution and then you grow the solution. But it's a cycle from the beginning to the end. And then you repeat that. So I call that empowered teams instead of feature teams. Yeah. I think the problem with handing over a product spec to a product owner is that the team doesn't really have the knowledge. You have a knowledge transference problem then. How does the team understand what the customer really wants and needs? And they need to understand that because the how and the what cannot be separated. So I have a goal 
And there's a million different ways to achieve that goal. Some of them will achieve parts of the goal. Some will achieve the others. Some of it will prioritize one thing or another. And I think as you start going through, you have constant trade-off decisions. So if you're separated, you could end up producing a bad product quite easily. Yeah, exactly. And that reminded me of a situation I had in Brazil. We were building a recommendation system. You bring a friend and then you get a reward. And we did a discover process. And I remember developers were saying, ah, we know how to solve this. They were talking about a customer without knowing the customer. Said, let's just hold on. Let's make something here to validate our assumptions. And once we are doing the real user test, I want you to be in the room with me because there's a difference when I tell them something and when they see and observe something. Before that, I used to share the feedback I got from the end users and developers start questioning me. Why is that? Are they stupid or what? It's so simple. And in this case, when I invited them to be part of the user interview and user test, the users were confused. They couldn't get to the end and so on. And developers were looking. Have you noticed that? He was confused. He didn't find that. Maybe the message is not clear. Maybe he's not getting the point. I think we are communicating in a way that doesn't resonate with our user. And then they start talking about the user and advocating. They said, no, I saw that. I saw that with three different people. It doesn't work with them. We need to do something different. I didn't need to tell them. They made their conclusions. And also they felt accountable for solving a problem, not for implementing a feature. So that changed. So when we talk about a product manager handing over a spec, how is that any different to a BA writing a big requirements document up front and handing it over to the developers? I mean, isn't that a classic example of documentation over conversation, over collaboration? For me, I need just a sentence. It's a reminder of a conversation. I sit down with developers and I say, here is what I, I know. There's this problem here. Users value that. And for us, we could get this business value. What do you think of it? And then we try to get a problem understanding and see the world from the same lenses. And we come with a solution. And what is the documentation? We write down our acceptance criteria. So I don't bring requirements for them. I bring problems. And then we figure out, can we solve this problem? And if so, which direction do we take? I used to be a business analyst and I wrote 30 page documentation. And it didn't help at all because people were not thinking. They were implementing exactly what I wrote there. Thinking upfront is the a valid illusion. I think that when you look at the plan, you say, that's it. I know how to get there. And then people will follow the plan. You may get what you want, but not what you need. And then you are surprised when the users look at us, eh, I cannot use this. It doesn't bring any value to me. Yeah, and for me, that's the same behavior as when a product owner writes all the stories before they turn up with the team and the team don't have a conversation about the outcome that we want to achieve, the customer or the persona that we are actually delivering something for. They just go through all the user stories and go, user wants to be able to log in with a login button that's at the top right in blue. We tend to like to write detail. We like to problem solve. So product owners tend to, over time, get really good at being descriptive about what they want built because they want to solve the problem, not actually describing the problem that they want the team to help them solve. So I'm with you on that. How do you incorporate that customer discovery into the process so that you're doing it all the way through? I think we will start with a clear goal. So that can have different names. 
That can be a product vision, can be a product goal, can be OKR. It needs to have a direction. And then once you have the direction, then you can start thinking, how can we solve that? Once I was in Brazil and we were in a secondhand car market and we were connecting car owners with dealers and we helped them sell their cars in one hour. It was an auction platform. And our challenge was dealers were not engaging. So we needed to figure out how to increase dealers engagement so that we would get a good offer for the car owner. And then our goal was dealers are engaged in our platform so that we get a good offer. I brought this problem to the team and we did a brainstorm together. We threw up ideas and then we tried to cluster the ideas and we did a prioritization, very simple one. And I used what I call a value metrics. It was in one X, like the potential outcome. Of course it's a guess, but it's to have an idea and the effort of making that happen. And for this, we could see where we have the low hanging fruits, where we have bets, like high effort and potential outcome, and where we have things that are just time wasters. We don't see a potential there and they can take a lot of time. So we came up with certain ideas and then said, how do we get to validate our assumptions? What does need to happen to prove the solution will work? And then with the team, we said, let's start as small as possible and validate with our real dealers. And then our initial sprints would be validating ideas and we build a low fidelity prototype, sometimes some broken features within the idea of validating specific thing. And once we validated, then we would start scaling up. And then it comes a secret uh, that I like doing with my teams. So for now, we're going to increase the technical debt because we want to scale the solution and prove it works and generate value. So we are not looking at perfection or to proper implementation. We're looking to creating value. And once we prove it creates value, we will pay off the technical debt and ensure it is scalable. And then we pick the next idea. So one idea at a time per team, some ideas didn't work, but we invested little time on that and they were not properly implemented. And instead of continue with them, we dropped. We said, okay, let's remove this from our product. We don't need to invest more. We know enough. It's not going to work. We need to pick another idea and do the same process again. So most people assume that in the scrum model, you build the feature, you deploy it, you see if people like it or not, but that's very expensive to build a full working feature. So I'm glad you talked about prototypes, but it sounds like you're still talking about releasing real things to real people to see whether they use it or not. And that still sounds quite expensive compared to bringing people in and showing them visual mock-ups. Sure. The initial prototype was exact mocked wireframe. So th there were possibilities of clicking and so on. So let's say we started with very low fidelity and seeing if users would understand that at all. And then we iterate it. And this, I'm not talking of a process that takes weeks. Every day we were yeah. doing something. So this is through bringing customers in and interviewing them. Exactly. So we had constant exchange with our real dealers and validated with them as often as possible. And important to say, I was not bridging communication between developers and users. Sometimes I was watching developers presenting to the real users, not me. 
I don't think product managers need to bridge communication. They need to set the direction and help the team get there. So shouldn't we rename them to be product leaders? Isn't the word manager just bring all that behavior of command and control? I'll talk to them and then I'll tell you what to do. We should just call them product leaders. That's what it is. Cause as you said, set the vision, set the goal, enable the team to get the job done, watch and observe and tweak where we need to inspect and adapt and help the team do things in a better way where it makes sense. And then get out of the way of the experts to build a product, to meet that goal. I'm smiling here because. I work at virtual identity and what we did there, we moved from project management to product management. So that's why I joined the company to implement product management. And you know what we decided? Project management to product management is one word different. And they said, it can still go in the same direction because people will still see the word management. And we said, what if we change the name of our team instead of product management team to product leadership? And this is what we call our team and our people are not product managers. They are product leads. So we change the name inside the organization and they say, we don't manage, we lead, we set direction, we empower people. And if we are managing, then we are falling into old patterns. And that's not what we want to do because actually I, what I see the, the product manager, it's something hard is imagine like an orchestra and there is the conductor, the conductor help the musicians connect and make the beautiful, beautiful. But the conductor is not playing any music at all. So that is a challenge. You need to help the guys play together and beautiful, but you don't touch any instrument, but you help them. Yeah. So I saw you wrote about product owner anti-patterns. So I was wondering if you could tell us what does weak product management look like and how common is it? Well, it's very common out of 10 companies. I, I can't see many signs in at least eight companies from what I have seen. Weak product management is a focus on command and control. It's a focus on the output and not the outcome. So with creating roadmaps and creating plans for that, and the plans are prescriptive. We know what to deliver, but we don't know what to achieve. And also it is about what do you do when you measure the outcome? Some teams come to the next level, then they focus on the outcome. But then it's like an investment. If you are investing in a company and then it's going down, what do you do? Do you wait until it recovers or do you sell that? And then you put on the winners. I think you, you should double down on the winners and then the losers, you just kick them off. So weak product management is not being brave. You are not courageous to remove from your product what is not working because you need to be courageous and product management. Some things are just not going to work and we need to remove them. Another sign of weak product management for me is the speed of learning. How fast do you learn? How fast do you validate your assumptions? So do you make decisions based on opinions or based on evidence? And evidence can be a low fidelity prototype. You show to a set of real users and you just need six users to show, and then you get an idea and define patterns. So should product managers do whatever customers want? No, I don't think so. Not all problems are worth solving. Customers have a lot of problems. Some problems they care more, some problems they care less. And what we need to find is the problems they care and that would generate value on both sides for the end users, for the customers, for the business. And we have the technology to solve this problem. So I think this is the magic. 
And sometimes you can make trade-offs and say, this is exclusively good for the customer. For the business, it will not bring something. But then we are making an investment to engage with the customer. But it's about being mindful in your decision and choosing problems that you can benefit from as a company. And you know that you generate value for the user. Not because the user asks, you should do it. That's not product management. That's like being a waiter. Product managers need to go beyond what users say. Can customers actually tell you what they need? Because quite often when you talk to customers, they'll tell you what solution they want. Yes, this is what I call the solution and problem sphere. Simple example, Jeff Patton wrote on his book, User Star Mapping. When you go to a doctor, do you tell the doctor, I came here because today I want you to prescribe me this medicine and that. Or you go to the doctor and say, I have a stomachache here and it's lasting for days now and that worries me. And then the doctor will say, what did you eat last week? When did it start? The thing is, you are the patient when you go to your doctor and then you give the symptoms and the doctor is a specialist. The doctor knows the solution better, but he needs to know the symptoms of the problem. And then he will be able to provide the proper solution for you. And what happens quite often with customers, they come to us as a specialist. They tell you exactly the feature they want, but they are the best ones to tell us which problems they have. When the customer say, I want this solution. And then say, interesting. Tell me what would that help you? What do you need to solve? Let me understand more. Why is that important for you? And how do you solve that right now? Because they may solve that right now in a different way. And how is that? So I think a product manager should be super curious and understand the reason behind the requests of customers. So it's one of the reasons we see that happen because our teams aren't talking to a real customer. They're talking to a proxy. They're talking to a person who is a specialist or a technologist or a product person. And so they're able to provide a solution because that's their domain. Whereas if you talk to the actual customer, the customer's like, I've got this problem. I got no idea how to fix it, but if you could do that, Hey, that's great. It's solving a problem for me. I'll give you money for that because I want it to go away. It's been annoying me. So for me, a lot of the times it's because we use proxies instead of using customers. Fully agree. I think it's still the mindset of talking to stakeholders, engaging with them and then understand what stakeholders want and then doing exactly what they want, provide solutions and so on. But for me, this is like flying blind. We talk a lot about the customers, but the customer is never in the room. And this is fine if we validate the assumptions. We can talk about the customers, but we should validate everything we think they may need or not, because only customers know what they need. I really hate the word stakeholders because you put everything in the same bucket. So stakeholder is a word that fits. It's one size fits all. A stakeholder is a business partner, is an accountant, it's a system, is a financial advisor, and it's the end user also. So I try to use stakeholders for business partners, but customers as the ones who use our product. But stakeholders for me, they are not the enemies, but they are also not the customers. They are partners. They enable us to deliver value to the end user. And that's what I try to do as a product manager and help my teams understand that. You don't deliver solutions for your stakeholders. You collaborate with them and find solutions for the customers. I want to ask you, how do we measure value? When I look at different 
features that we could be building. Some of them are a lot more expensive than others. And I want to know if a particular change or a particular feature is twice as valuable or 10 times as valuable. How can I determine that so I can make those trade-off decisions? Yeah, this is an important question to ask. And I think it's about doing A-B testing. It's about defining the right metric. Because for example, if you take a heavy metric like revenue, this is super slow to measure. It takes a while to measure revenue. Many decisions have been made until uh, you can see the revenue. So I, this is a laggard met uh, metric. And product managers should find the leading metrics. So what is our, your ultimate goal? Going back to the example of the car dealers in Brazil. The ultimate goal is we make a deal. So the offer will be good enough so that the car owner will accept. So that is the ultimate goal. But what would lead to that? We had a problem with engagement. And the very first problem is the dealer opening our platform and click on a car. And then we can measure this. And we start addressing that and try with different solutions. And a prototype in a low level fidelity can be an A-B test and see what is helping the dealers. And observe them also sometimes in real examples. And then you can find the solution. But it's important to have a metric that is actionable and actionable fast. So that is what, what I have been trying to do. And it has helped me quite a lot. So there's a, there's a bunch of ways we can prioritize the work to be done. And one that interests me is the Kano pattern. And what interests me about that is it talks about exciters versus satisfiers. And an example for me was I upgraded my iPhone. And last time I upgraded my phone, I, I had to get my old phone. I had to back it up to iCloud or to my Mac. And then I had to get the new phone and plug it in and wait for it to restore. And this time I took the new phone out of the box and turned it on. And once I signed up with my Apple ID, it said, hey, your other phone's right next door. Do you want to copy it? And I went, hell yeah. And it just did it for me. Now, yeah, it's not a satisfier because the other process would have worked for me. But man, that was an exciter. That was a wow moment. That was the sprinkles on top of my Sunday. I didn't need it, but I really enjoyed it. And so once we get past minimum viable product, once we get past something that allows the customer to do the minimum task that we need them to do or we problem we want to solve, how do we prioritize between too many wow moments or none? What do you do when you're prioritizing options for the work that can be done? That is part of the company strategy. Do you want to be another product in the market or do you want to stand out there? Because if you want to be top of mind, you need to do things differently. And by doing things different, it's not about delivering features. And then you need to forget about MVP. You need to go to MLP, minimal lovable product. And then you focus on creating a great experience for a small set of users. You will only progress to the next level when you have a great net promoter score. I wanted to talk to you about scaling. How do you scale up the product leader function? Because each team of say six to 10 people should have a product leader, but many products will need 50 people to work on them or, or a thousand people because they're big complex products. So I was wondering, what are your thoughts on scaling up? Do you have a product leader at the next level up and then another one, the next level up and so on? What do you recommend? Yeah, the answer for me is always a, a big depends, but I think an experienced product lead can lead to three teams from six to eight people. I have seen that working uh, with me. It got quite stressful in the beginning, but actually 
it helped me move from output driven to outcome because when I had three teams, I had no choice but to empower them. And then I had no time to write stories, to write tickets, but I had time to set goals and to think, what do we want to achieve? Uh, what is important? And to talk to the team about it and figure out what the problem is and then empower the team to do that on their own. When it comes to scaling with more teams, I think to be sustainable is to avoid the segmented responsibility. I worked in many online shops and one of the online shops, there was a team for carta checkout, another team for product information management, and another team for service desk. And the roadmaps were done based on what could this team do, even if it didn't make any sense for the product. For example, we had a good product information management, so we didn't need to do anything. But then I said, mm, but this team is unable to work in the other initiatives. Then let's do a full refactor here and create a new interface. So that's what the, the guys start doing. But I liked another initiative I've had in another team. We were a group of seven product managers and we agreed on the initiatives we wanted to tackle. And then we said, who want to join that? And each developer could per quarter or semester decide which team they would go. And then we would have a, a team focus on initiatives and the teams would be dynamic. And that was quite interesting because the product leads on the initiative and then the developers would come to the initiative. Of course, some initiatives are more interesting than the others. And then people don't want to do that. But then the developers would say this month, I will take the boring initiative, but next time I will go to the good one. And then you go to the boring one. So they started being self-organizing, but the thing is we empower them to make the decision. We didn't tell them you come to this team and you do that. I think in scaling, it is about having clarity where you want to go and then empower your team to do that. Of course, this is something that doesn't create a lot of context knowledge when you need domain for card and checkout and so on, but inspires the team to take the next step and go extra mile. In Scrum, you've got Scrum Nexus and in less, you've got a team of teams approach. So it's common to see this pattern where there is a leadership team or an integration team. So somebody in that team would be a product owner for a program of work, which might have several teams in it that each has a product owner. That's what I've seen work. I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah. When it comes to scaling teams, less is my favorite. It's not that prescriptive. You have an area product owner who oversees that, and then you have the product owners. So this, I think it's a good way of scaling. But when it comes to scaling, I also think it's important to keep it simple. Scaling doesn't mean you need to add strong, robust processes, because if you do that, most probably we will come back to a waterfall behavior. Example for me is safe, scaled agile framework. I perceive safe as a fake waterfall. I got one more question related to scaling. So it's common to see product owners getting burnt out and working 60 or 80 hours a week because teams expect them to write all the requirements for them, as well as interface with all of the other stakeholders in the organization and talk to customers and users and make all the product design decisions. And then those stakeholders expect them to update the business case and produce the marketing plan and work with the salespeople. So you get this issue where 
product owners expected to do this huge amount of work. And I'm wondering, what's the best way to take some of that burden off them? What's the best way to support the product owner? To be an enabler and not to be a manager. So I manage the product backlog for two teams and four hours a week. I don't take more time than that. But my stories are completely broken. They are a sentence. And I know I'm going to refine with the team and they're the best people to find the solutions for that. So I just write a problem and describe with them. And I see the, the product owner not as a technical role that's focused on the execution, more strategic and setting directions. I was one of these guys working 60 to 8 hours a week. Coming back to the startup, when we went from one team to three teams, the only product owner, and we went from eight developers to 25. And I was in Brazil and the team was located in Dominican Republic. And when we got this announcement, I was talking to the guy in Dominican Republic and we sat by the beach and he looked at me, Hey buddy, how are you deal dealing with that? He said, I don't know. I, I think I'm fucked up. And then he looked at me and said, well, it depends. Maybe if you keep your strategy of writing precise stories to us, yes, you are because everything you do for eight people. You cannot do that for 25 anymore. However, if you decide to trust us and point the monster, and then you let us figure out how to slay this beast now, then we can help you. But we need to, to be more connected and just point the right monster, find the one that we should kill, and then we go down and kill it. And I reflect for that in a while and said, yeah, I'm not being a real product owner. I'm just being here like a, a project manager, to be honest, or a, a mixture of project manager and business analyst writing requirements and then managing the scope and the time and so on. And then I stepped back and I started being more focused on strategic decisions and empowering the others. You know, one anti-pattern, do you have a PO approval on your Jira board? Do you need to sign off all the items? So if you need to sign off all the items, it is already a problem because you should focus on. What is the sprint goal? And let the team achieve that. And then you let the team present it to you. And in the end, you can decide either you want to iterate that again or so on. So it's about letting the best person on the job make the decision. The UX person is the best to make decisions on user experience. The UI the best to make a decision on the product design and developer the best to make the architecture. But what a product owner could do is like, this problem is a problem that is worth investing a sprint because the, it doesn't worth more than that. So in terms of effort, we can put a sprint on it. What can we do in a sprint? And then you ask these questions, you bring them some challenge and you have them figure out. That's good. All right. I think we better go to summaries. So I love the idea of one bus says one bus driver. I think that's a beautiful sentence. Because the more people in charge, the less accountability. We've all seen it. Three people driving the bus does not go well. I like the idea that as a product leader, you start with a clear goal. You may use a vision statement. You may use goals. You may use OKRs. There's lots of patterns, how you can articulate the goal to the team and the vision to the team, but do that and let them get on with it. And that we really are talking about product leaders, not product managers. The people I see who are the most successful in these roles are leaders by the way they act and behave, not managers. And I love the idea of you're the conductor, not the player. There is no instrument in your hand. You're doing the hard job of getting everybody to work together. So I thought that was quite a good idea. It made me think that we often teach or train people to be product owners, but we don't 
teach them the product leadership skills. We teach them how to be a product owner in Scrum. We don't teach them how to be a product leader, how to understand value, how to understand what the customer may want, understand that goal. So I think we should change how we educate and train people. I think that idea of start with low fidelity and only enhance it when it shows value. So whatever the way you can get it in front of a customer early, even if it's ugly, and then see if it's worth continuing investment or are you on the right track? Measure the outcome, you know, and then use that as feedback on what to add and what to remove. And I struggle with that one because I find it hard to figure out how I'm going to measure whether that value has been achieved apart from I like it, which isn't a great measurement technique. I love the idea of we go to the doctor with a symptom, not a solution. Well, some of us Google it first just to see if he's doing it right. But often our customers and our stakeholders come to us with solutions, not problems. So that's an interesting thing for me. And yes, stakeholder has become the new term for the business. It's one size fit all for a group of people who aren't us IT geeks. So we need to change that terminology yet again. I love the idea of get yourself too busy to do the work. Because then you have no choice but to power the team to do it for you because you just won't get it done. And last one for me, minimum vile product versus minimum lovable product. Look at it with a lens of what's your product strategy? Are you just another product in the market or are you something that's unique? And you have to pick one of those and go for it. And that changes everything you do within your product. So some really good points for me that came out of this concept of product leaders. I think. For me, the big reminder is that a product leader doesn't need to write all the requirement because that's a very common thing. I see that product leaders are expected to write detailed business requirements for developers and testers who will then go off and do it. It's still very common pattern and we need to try and move people away from that because it's too much for the product owner and it distracts them from talking to the customer and user about what's really important. So maybe we get a business analyst on the team to help them, or we get somebody else in the team to help them or distribute it. But I think we need to help them so that they're not focused on the implementation all the time. Cause I see that as a, being a very common thing. Any final thoughts from you, David, how can people find you? People can find me. LinkedIn, Median, David Pereira, or my website, d-pereira.com. I'm available. I always love exchanging with people. And final thoughts, empower people. That's what I think it's the bottom line. Product owners and our managers, whatever the name is, I think it's very important is there is a, a discussion, the difference between product owner, product manager, and so on. I think it doesn't matter. You need to be accountable from end to end. And the only way for me to succeed is empower people, give them direction and let them get the job done. Good. All right. Thanks for coming on, David. It's been great having you. Yep. Catch you all later. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. 